0: Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning. Happy Easter, everyone. Man, what a Sunday to be back. Easter Sunday. Billions of people around the globe are celebrating this day with us. Isn't that incredible? That one weekend 2,000 years ago, which changed everything forever. And we get to join with Christians all around the world today, throughout history, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And I mean, coming back to preach, I mean, you can't get much better than this, can you? It's been probably been six months since I preached in person, um, and... Uh, it has done my heart good, my soul good, these last few weeks, just meditating and reflecting upon the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrect, uh, re- meditating upon the message that death is not the end. I mean, if ever we there was a time that we needed to be reminded that death is not the end, if ever there was a time that we re- needed to re- be reminded um, that there is still hope, if ever there was a time that we needed to be reminded of our God who is a resurrecting, bringing things back to life by the power of his lifetime of God, then this is it, right? Um, This last week, I was running along the river and I ran past uh, the COVID memorial wall. I don't know if you guys know that I was there. I had no idea. I was just running, running along and outside St. Thomas's Hospital and I just started noticing hearts on the wall, thousands and thousands and thousands of hearts. And it took me a moment to realize what it was and then when I did, I just stopped and I just stared and I thought this is just a small representation of the 150,000 people in the UK who have died this last year due to COVID. And I just found myself, I, I found myself welling up just thinking that this thing that just looking at this thinking this represents so much, doesn't it? Not just loss of life, but everything else that has happened this last year that has brought into such stark focus that yes, this world is full of love and it is full of beauty, but it is also full of pain and of suffering. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, it's easy to have the response that those two disciples did on the road to Emmaus. You know, they're walking and this stranger side was up to them and he says, what's been going on? And they explain it to Jesus, didn't realize it was him. And they end with that heartbreaking line, they crucified him. But we had hoped. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped, but we have been disappointed. We had hoped, but our hope is now broken. Is there anything more relatable to the human experience than that? The disciples had all hoped that Jesus was the promised Messiah, this kind of military leader chosen by God, who, like Moses, would be raised up to take the fight to the new Egypt, to take the fight to Rome, to destroy this empire that had enslaved and occupied them, that would lead them into a kingdom far greater than the kingdom of David. And so Jesus' death to them seemed like not just the death of this man, but the death of the hope of salvation itself. Seemed like the death to any hope that life could be different, that the world could be different. And actually, in many ways, even with his resurrection, I mean, what on the surface had changed that day? Rome was still in charge. Israel was still occupied. The disciples were still wanted by the authorities. The poor were still hungry. People were still getting sick and dying. Slaves were still being exploited. Women and children were still being mistreated. On the surface, at least, Jesus' death and resurrection didn't look like it achieved much. And looking back over this last year particularly, we might have the same question. What exactly did the resurrection of Jesus achieve? Was it just a surprise twist at the end of the gospel story, an isolated demonstration of divine dazzlement performed to prove that Jesus was God? Or if we bring it closer to home, what does the resurrection mean for us 2,000 years later? Where we're still living in a world where 130 million people can contract a new disease. Three million of them can die. Not to mention every other way that the world is not as we would have it be. Well, my friends, I think the resurrection changed everything. It may not have changed things in the way that the disciples were expecting. It may not have changed things in the way or at least the timing that we would like, but the world is a profoundly different place because of it. And we can have hope, we can have profound certainty that we are indeed headed for a different future, a future where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, because Jesus has been raised to life. And not only that, we can hope that some of that future is being pulled into our present now. And there are loads of things that we could reflect upon this morning to think about what the resurrection means. But I just want to look at two. The resurrection of Jesus means that there is life after death. And the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope there is actually resurrection life before death too. So firstly, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope, gives us a profound certainty that there is life after death, and not just for Jesus, but for all of us. So in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, probably written before 60 AD, so within a generation of Jesus, Paul quotes what is regarded to be an early creed that the church used widely at that time. And this is what he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, in accordance with the whole unified narrative that is leading towards and finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the 12. And I love this as a kind of a footnote. Oh, and also, he appeared to like 500 other people. And if you want to, you can pretty much go and chat to them and talk to them, because this thing really happened. And then if we skip down a few verses, Paul writes this. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead as the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All will be resurrected from death. Now, first fruits here is a phrase that's loaded with Old Testament meaning. In Leviticus 23, the Israelites are instructed by God to celebrate every year his provision to them, physical provision, by bringing the first fruits, the first crops of their whole crop. So the first, crops, uh, first fruits weren't the whole harvest, they were just this, the first of that which the Israelites brought to the temple. And Paul is saying, therefore, that Christ's bodily, embodied physical resurrection is not the end. It's just the beginning of God's resurrecting work. And we too will experience a resurrection from the dead in just the same way that he has, in bodily, physical form. I guess it's a little bit uh, like when you see a flash of lightning across the sky, and you have to wait until you hear the thunderclap. You know those two events go together. You can't have one without the other. And the resurrection of Jesus is like light that has lit up the sky And now we're just waiting, each one of us, for our own personal thunderclap. And this has been one of the main ways that the church has explained the meaning of the resurrection from the beginning. Uh, Let me illustrate that with um, showing you this version of the resurrection icon. I don't know if you can see it quite well on the screen. You can just about. Now... People sometimes get a little bit freaked out by icons. I kind of like think of them as ancient movies. They're artistic works that kind of reveal something that as you look at them, you understand something more of what's going on. Uh, This one was painted on the ceiling of a church in Turkey in the 1300s. But you can find loads of different versions of this. And they all have the same theme. So you have Jesus there, just about see him in the middle. Robes of white, kind of light and life emanating from him. And then around the top, you have a whole bunch of resurrected saints. So King David and Abraham and Moses. And then you can see just about at the bottom, you have a man and a woman here being pulled up from the grave. And they are Adam and Eve. And the point is that the resurrecting power of Jesus works back through history to the very beginning of humanity and raises us to life. And you can see, if you look click, Closely on this, how Jesus is holding on to Adam and Eve. He is grabbing them round the wrists. And they painted it this way to show that humanity is doing nothing at all in this. They're not even reaching up, holding on to Jesus. And yet Jesus is reaching down, grabbing humanity by the wrist and lifting them up into resurrection life, which is just incredible. Um, In some of the icons, you see Jesus standing on the door of Hades. Um, you can just about see on that. On this next one, you can see that the door of Hades, the door of death, is in the shape of a cross. The irony that death thought that it had won, and yet through the cross, death has been defeated. In some of them, you have death personified as a person who's bound and gagged underneath the feet of Jesus. This is from Jesus in the Gospels where he says, in order to plunder a man's house, you have to tie him up. This whole idea is that Jesus tied up death and went into death and rescued humanity out of it. I love this line from George Herbert. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Which means that because of the resurrection, we aren't merely buried when we die. We are planted to rise again. The body that is sown, that is planted, is perishable, Paul writes. But because of Jesus' resurrection, we can be sure that it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. So one of the great hopes of the Easter message is that death is not the end for us. Though we may not escape escape from death, we will escape through death. And a continuing life of love is possible after death. But another hope of the resurrection of Jesus is that there is resurrection life available to us right now. Last week, Liam spoke beautifully about the relationship that God is available to each one of us now because of Jesus. He spoke from John 20, um, which is a resurrection theme. Jesus, The resurrected Jesus appears in this room with the disciples and he breathes over them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he commissions them, go out into the world and tell the world that they are forgiven and relationship is possible. And Liam reminded us that... Um, God has already forgiven us. So that we don't repent, we don't turn to God in order for him to respond to our repentance with forgiveness. Rather, repentance is just the name that we give to turning back to experience the forgiveness of God. As Paul says, it's the kindness of God that leads to our repentance. Do you remember Liam's analogy? He said, the meal is ready, come and eat. That is our message going out into the world. Forgiveness is here. Come and experience it. And that is true and beautiful and necessary and absolutely incredible news. But it also isn't the entirety of the news of Easter. I want to add another layer into that this morning because actually forgiveness is not all that we need. It doesn't end with forgiveness. Forgiveness is what brings us back into relationship with God, but forgiveness by itself is not enough to put the cosmos right. It's not actually enough by itself to put us right. There must be a working of justice too. And now when I say justice, I think many of you may think of a certain type of justice, a certain type of punitive justice, just punishing that which is wrong. That's not what I'm talking about. The kind of justice that I believe the scriptures talk about is the kind of justice that stitches together a fractured world. The kind of justice that recreates the world in line with the very heart of God making all things new again. Now just to warn you, I'm going to kind of ask for five minutes of your time to do some, you may need to concentrate and really think about this type of theology. I know that's asking a lot, like this time in the morning, and I hope you had some caffeine, hope you're sugar high from chocolate breakfast hasn't going to put you into a sugar low now, but lean into this because this is just super helpful. So in Romans 4, Paul writes that Jesus was delivered for our sins and was raised to life for our justification, for our justification. Now Fleming Rutledge, uh, who wrote my favorite ever book on the crucifixion, handily called the crucifixion. Um, It is a tome, but is well worth an investment of your time. She argues that the word translated justification here is uh, from the same Greek word family as the words righteous and righteousness. And she says it will be better translated as rectification, which you can understand why it's not, because that's not really a word that we use. But rectification means to make right. And her point is that the English word justification has too much of a merely legal connotation to it. It can make it sound like us being justified is just about giving us a non-guilty verdict in a trial without any change to us whatsoever. But because the Greek word actually means to set right, the meaning of justify here is more like when you justify a paragraph in a word document. You know, when you do that, what it does, it aligns it to the left and to the right. It actually changes the the form and the feature of the paragraph that you're writing. So Jesus being raised for our justification means that he was raised to actually change us. It wasn't just a legal pronouncement. The, The grace of God at work in us actually realigns us to the character of God. And when we read in the scriptures about the righteousness of God, Fleming says that we need to understand that God's righteousness always has the character of a verb rather than a noun. So it's not so much that God is righteous, although he is, but rather that God does righteousness. He has the power and the desire to bring about righteousness, to make right what is not right, to realign what had been bent out of shape, and so as we think about like the gospel narrative, we see it was God's love and forgiveness that sent Jesus to the cross for us. And it was on the cross that God was in Jesus beginning this process whereby the world would be set right by defeating the power of sin and death through his self-sacrificing love. And then it's because of the resurrection that the very spirit of Jesus, which was once limited to one body, one place, one time, is now available to anyone and everyone, wherever we are in the world. And now everyone who believes in the good news that forgiveness is available, responds in faith and enters into relationship with God When we are united to Jesus, when we are reconciled to him, when our relationship is restored through faith, it's now the power of his spirit that flows into us. It is now resurrection life that is available for us, flowing into us, beginning to make right what has been wrong. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5. He says, For if while we are God's enemies, not that God was our enemy but that we were in rebellion against God, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Again, the cross didn't change how God feels about us. The cross changed how we are able to feel about God. The cross shows us that God loves us. We go to any lengths in order to make things right with us, that he forgives us. And so it makes us able to lay down our weapons, to surrender to him. And Paul says, how much more having been reconciled, having responded to forgiveness, having been united to Christ by faith, shall we be saved? And that word there means healed, made whole, delivered, justified, rectified, realigned, made right through his life. By being joined to his life. Life by experiencing his resurrection life flowing into us by his spirit. I mean, that right there, that's good news, isn't it? We are loved, we are forgiven, death has been defeated, and now the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us, changing us, making us to be more like him. Listen to these words written by John Calvin, who, yes, like all of us, had a lot of flaws and blind spots, but was a man who was blessed with incredible insight into the work of God and I think had the heart of a spoken word poet. He said, Jesus humbled himself to exalt us. He made himself a servant to set us free. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to buy us back. Captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us. He was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness. Marred that we may be made fair. He died that we might have life. So that by him, hardness is softened, darkness is turned into light, fear reassured, despisal despised, debt cancelled, labor lightened, sadness made merry, misfortune made fortunate, difficulty easy, disorder ordered, division united, rebellion subjected, intimidation intimidated, ambush uncovered, assaults assailed, force forced back, combat combated, war war against vengeance avenged torment tormented damnation damned the abyss sunk into the abyss hell burned up death destroyed mortality made immortal yeah he could write hey in short mercy has swallowed up all misery and kindness all misfortune that is what jesus has done for us That is the great reversal of his death and resurrection. That is what we get to step into and experience. But I guess there is a caveat to all of that good news. And that is that in order to receive it, in order to step into the light of it, we have to face up to the hard truth that we are all in need of it. That we are in need of setting right that we don't have the ability, the willpower, the moral character, the understanding to make ourselves right. In his most recent book, Tim Keller uh, talks uh, all about Easter. Obviously, I read that before this. Um, And he talks about how hard it is to accept a gift when it means admitting our own weakness. So this 70-year-old American says, imagine, for argument's sake, an aging man whose hearing is going. And he is convinced that it's not his hearing, it's just that other people mumble. This goes on and on, and then his wife suggests to him, maybe you should get your hearing checked. And so he does, and the results come back, you need a hearing aid. And he goes to buy one, and they're just so expensive, he's like, it's fine, I can do without this. And then his wife says, buy the best one you can, this is my gift to you. That sounds nice, Keller says. But the man realizes that to accept this gift is to admit his weakness. It is to say, thanks so much. Indeed, I am a man who is aging and can no longer hear." He says, there's no way to receive some gifts without admitting your need. I was talking about this to Larry, our food bank project manager. Um, we catch up twice a week and this is often the stuff we talk about. We do food bank stuff as well, but I'm working from home at the moment. I don't have an outlet for this, so she kind of gets it both barrels, which she enjoys. She's doing a masters and we talk about all this kind of stuff. And we're talking about how hard it is to repent, to admit that we are wrong, to admit that we are broken, to admit that we need someone outside of ourselves to help us. And she said it reminded her of a song by the artist Madison Ryan Ward called The Key which is a song about kind of holding on to the possibility of change, of finding a key that sets us free. In the middle of that song, she sings, I can't take the shame of mercy. Can't take the shame of mercy. Like Keller and his hearing aid, sometimes when we're confronted by mercy, we feel shame because it's a reminder that we are the kind of person that needs mercy, that needs grace. And that can even stop us from coming to receive it. So how do we get over that? Well, I think that Peter's story has something to teach us here. And I I love the comparison between his first recorded encounter with Jesus and his last recorded encounter with Jesus. So if you know the story, first recorded encounter, him and his friends, they're fishermen. They've been out fishing all night, caught nothing. And they come back into shore. It's early in the morning. And Jesus is there teaching people on the shoreline and he asks, can I borrow your boat? Kind of uses like an amphitheater. And so like, Peter's like fine, like gets in the boat, Jesus teaches forever long, that finishes. Um, and then he says, hey, why don't you guys try like putting the nets down again? And Peter's like, hey man, rabbi, great teaching. I'm a fisherman, I've been doing this a long time. Like, we've been out all night, haven't caught anything. Kind of like if you're driving home and, like, you break down in your car and Liam Thatcher drives over. Hey, can I help you? Like, hey, man, great teaching. Maybe leave this stuff to other people. So that's kind of like what Peter's saying at this point. And she says, go on, like, throw the nets down. And he does. And, like, fish just jump into the net. So many fish that the boat starts to tip over. They call their friends to haul in this massive catch of fish. And he gets onto. Dry land. He's with Jesus, and do you know what happens? He falls to his knees. And he says, "Get away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man." He realizes this. This is someone different, someone powerful, someone holy. Maybe a prophet from God, and he doesn't want to be seen, truly seen by him. He knows there's stuff inside that he wants to stay away. I mean, this this is Adam and Eve in the garden, right? This is running away from relationship, scared of being known or fully known. He says, stay away from me. I'm a sinful man. And then fast forward to the last encounter. Three years has happened in between. And Peter's traveled around with Jesus. He's seen him in front of crowds, seen him around campfires. And this last scene happens a week or so after the resurrection, where Jesus has appeared to them. After the great Peter who had said to Jesus, I will walk into hell by your side, if that's where you're going, had abandoned him, had betrayed him. Had called down curses upon Jesus in order to save his own life and was too scared to go and stand with Jesus as he was crucified, just saw this all at a distance. And this last scene happens again back on a boat. So uh, Peter is out again with his friends. They've been out fishing all night caught nothing come back in and then this figure on the shoreline says hey guys why don't you try the other side they didn't know it was Jesus at that point for whatever reason they did it throw the nets down again fish jump into the nets the boat starts tipping again and John says to Peter I think that's the Lord and you know what happens this time do you know what happens this time this, to this man who had called down curses upon Jesus, who had betrayed the person he loved most in the world, the person he knew loved him most? Do you know what this man full of shame and guilt did? Before John could even finish saying, I think it's the Lord, he jumped into the water and he swam as fast and as hard as he could for Jesus. What had changed that first encounter, I am sinful, I'm holy, stay away from me, to this second encounter, I have betrayed you, and yet I want to be near you. What a change between these two encounters. It was because he knew something of Jesus in the first, but he had come to know Jesus in the second. He knew the heart of Jesus, he trusted in the heart of Jesus. He knew that this was a man who was the same nature of God, who was gracious and compassionate. Slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. He had come to trust this Jesus. He had seen him die. He had seen him rise again and didn't come back vengeful but came back forgiving. And so he knew this man is safe. He knew, I just want to be with him again. He knew that forgiveness was waiting for him, that to come to Jesus would be to encounter forgiveness. And so he does. And so he swims as fast as he can. He gets onto the shore. Do you know what happens then? Jesus makes a fire. They grill some of the fish that they caught. And they have this most beautiful encounter where he restores him. Through restored relationship, Jesus comes to restore Peter himself. And that is our story, isn't it? We can know that we are forgiven because of the death of Jesus. Because he went to that willingly for us. Knowing everything that we would do to mess up. Every way we would betray him. Every way we would walk away from the things that we know. He knew all of that and yet he went to the cross for us because of his great love for us. And the message is there is forgiveness Come and encounter it, and it's through restored relationship with Jesus that we are therefore restored. Not just to him, but to become the people that God intended us to be. Through restored relationship, we are realigned. And I, I don't know what this last year has been like for you. I don't know if you have had doubts I don't know if your relationship with God has suffered. I don't know if things have just come up which you're like, what the heck is this? And I don't know if you have walked away this last year. I don't know if this has been so tough and you thought, how can, this be, how can God be in this? And you have felt, I just can't do this. You've started doing things you know that you shouldn't. You've stopped doing things that you know that you should. I don't know where you are this morning. but I want you to know. There's forgiveness. Come to Jesus and you will encounter forgiveness. You will encounter the one that gave his life for you. And when you come back to him, his spirit will flow into you again. And you can be righted. You can be realigned to the very heart of God. That is the message of Easter. That God is for us. And because he is for us, he has made a way to be with us. And in being with God, united to him in faith, we can be changed. And not just us, but the whole world. And I I want us to think about that this morning. I've been thinking about that these last couple of weeks. This is a new season for us, isn't it? It feels like tail end of the pandemic hopefully, feel like we're coming out of this. And and we have a message. We have a message for this hurting world, this world that is devoid of hope, this world who has seen the things that they have trusted in fall away. And our message is there's a God who loves you and not just loves you, but will work in you to make you right, to justify you and through a community together, can see the world changed as well. And as we come back, we need to know that there's forgiveness. We need to get ourselves right in order that we together might be this community that can spread the good news to to this area, to this part of London, to our friends, our family in our neighborhood, that we can work to see the world righted. But that starts with knowing That we are okay with God. And so, Hannah, if you could just come and play. I'm just going to give us a moment to do that. Give us a moment to come back to God. This God, who, like with the the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, what does Jesus do? He runs after those who are walking away from him. Do you get that? That is the God that we have. He runs after those even when we walk away from him, in order to bring us back. That is what God is wanting to do with us this morning. So I'm just going to give us a moment for us to to bring ourselves back to God, to surrender again to him. Maybe there's stuff that you need to confess. Maybe there's stuff you just need to say sorry for and repent for. Maybe there's things, you know, I need to sort this out, that relationship, like this way of living give us a moment to do that and then we're going to pray a prayer that will come up on the screen all the stuff in bold we'll say together, Italics, I'll read for us I'm just going to give you a moment to pray and then we'll pray together Together, what's involved. Meet us, O Christ, in this stillness of morning. Move us, O Spirit, to quiet our hearts. Mend us, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discords of yesterday, resurrect our peace. From the discouragements of yesterday, Resurrect our hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect our strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect our faith. From the wounds of yesterday, resurrect our love. Let it enter us this new day aware of our need. Let us awake to your grace, O oh Lord. Let's worship again. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to christchurchlondon.org.